Welcome to The Cutting Floor, a weekly podcast of West Cannon Baptist Church. Each week we'll be looking at topics and questions coming from the Sunday morning sermon passage that didn't make it into the sermon or were worth looking at further. In other words, what was left on the cutting floor. I'm Emily and with me is Pastor Zach. This week your sermon covered Genesis 2 verse 25 through 3 verse 6, which was your first sermon addressing corruption. We had a number of listener questions this week. Our first one was, do we know how long angels were created before mankind? Well, short answer to that is no. We don't know precisely how long a period between the creation of the angels and when man is created. A couple of things we do know. We do know that the angels are at least there to witness the early parts of creation. So we've spoken before about Job 38. Um, There, God is speaking to Job about his creation of the universe, and he says to Job, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And throughout the Old Testament, those two phrases there, morning stars and sons of God, are frequently used to describe the angels. So the angels are at least present in the early days of creation to visibly observe what God is doing. So it's possible that they were created before the events of Genesis uh, 1-2 or 1-3. Um, I think the Genesis account is primarily describing the creation of the cosmos, not necessarily the creation of the spiritual realm and, and the spiritual beings like angels. We don't know how long the intervening time then is between when angels were creation created and where man was created, we simply know angels are created beings like the rest of creation. They weren't infinite like God is. So we know sin already existed because of Satan's actions prior to the fall. So was God unhappy with angels and that's why he decided to create mankind? You know, I think uh, several things we need to bear in mind. Number one, God's purpose for creating mankind is different and unique from his purpose in creating angels. Mankind are not duplicates of angels. They are created in God's image. We never read that angels are created in God's image. In fact, it seems to be the case that man is unique in this image bearing uh, because we read later in the scriptures that don't you know we will one day rule angels. So there seems to be a unique authority that man is given vested with the image of God that angels uh, don't possess or, or, or will not possess in the age to come. But as we looked at earlier uh, on Sunday, if we read a, um, a couple of the texts that we looked at before related to Satan's fall, uh, we read in Ezekiel chapter uh, 28 that speaking of Satan or Lucifer, that you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of the Lord or the garden of God. Now we remember back in Genesis chapter two, Eden is not created until after the man Adam has been created. And so Satan's fall seems to occur between the events that are described in Genesis chapter two and the events that are described in Genesis chapter three. And if that timeline is correct, then that would mean that uh, Satan's fall occurred after the creation of mankind. And so the creation of mankind is not a response to the fall of the angelic beings. Uh, Mankind's creation is a separate event because of God's plan for them as representatives of him in this world that he's made. If Adam and Eve brought sin into the world, 
which brought about death and disease and suffering, then what do we call Satan's fall? Was his still sin? I think we are appropriately able to call what happened to Satan a fall as well. And, And the reason we can say that is we're using biblical language when we do. So in Isaiah chapter 14, again, a text describing what occurred in Lucifer's heart. We read, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. You are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. So Satan, uh, as we read in this text, he's created as an angelic being. In his heart, he says, I will be like the Most High. So pride enters in his heart. says that he was created in perfection until unrighteousness was found in you. And so this idea of sin that comes into the heart Uh, happens first in Satan's case, he then experiences a fall, and then we have the fall that occurs in Genesis chapter 3. So properly speaking, the fall of humankind is the second fall of created beings that has occurred. There's already been a fall that has happened. There's already been the introduction of sin to a created being. We just think of the fall as unique because we're speaking of how does this come now into the created world that God has made that's described in the Genesis narrative and particularly to humankind. But this is really the second fall that has occurred. How do we address John eight forty four when it says he, as in Satan, was a murderer from the beginning? In our sermons, it seems like Satan was perfect in the beginning and then he fell. We're going to touch on this a little bit more, particularly when we get to Genesis chapter 4, because in Genesis 4, we read of the first murder that occurs in human history when Cain rises up and and kills his brother Abel. There's an interesting uh, verse that we're going to get to in chapter 3 that really has a huge influence on the rest of biblical history. It's both a curse and a promise. It's a curse that's spoken to the serpent um, that the seed of the woman is going to have enmity with the seed of the serpent. And what we then see is throughout the rest of redemptive history, there is this struggle between those who believe in the promises of God, and this is the promised seed line that is developing that eventually culminates in Jesus, and the seed of the serpent, or in other words, those who pursue their sin, they reject God, they reject God's people, and as a result, they live as those under the ban or outcasts from God. And this is most of the unregenerate world that we're speaking of, most of, most of the world, all of the unregenerate world. And the first person that we see who, who rejects the line of promise is Cain, who hates the fact that God has accepted his brother's sacrifice and rejected his. And so he rises up and he kills his brother. And so he is behaving as though he is a child of the devil, so to speak. This is uh, what we'll read in the, the New Testament, that we are children of wrath, sons of disobedience, while we are still in our flesh, while we are rejecting the promises of God. That's what Cain does. And so he is like the seed of the serpent when he kills his brother. And so he is of his father, the devil, who was a murderer from the beginning. And so Cain typifies through his physical action what Satan has already desired in his heart. Satan's desire is to get Adam and Eve to eat of the fruit so that they will surely die. His intent is to lie in order to accomplish the murder of the first man and wife who are made in God's image. His desire is to kill and destroy. And then that is physically enacted in the murder of of Abel by Cain. Did Adam and Eve have some knowledge of good and evil prior to eating from the tree since they understood that disobeying God would be wrong? I think if we look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, we find that the man and his wife are naked and without shame. I suggested on Sunday that that is 
in addition to being a physical description, it's principally a moral description that they have not experienced as of yet any of the shame of sin. They don't have anything to hide from one another. There's no deceit that has entered into human relationships. They are blissfully innocent and unaware of all of the complexity and the distortion and ugliness of both evil and sin. And so I think that their knowledge to this point is only the knowledge of the good. Even their knowledge of um, of the consequences of what disobedience will mean is still a hypothetical knowledge that God has told them that they will surely die. But they, they haven't experienced as of yet anything of what this death would mean. And so they don't know what they don't know. All, all that they yet have experienced is the condition that they were created in, which is in innocent obedience to the commands of God, which is why we'll read uh, this coming week when we, when we go into the latter part of chapter, uh, chapter 3, that it is at the time of their eating of this forbidden fruit that their eyes are opened. In other words, they become aware of this whole sphere of knowledge that they didn't have before. But as we'll see when we look at that, while their eyes are opened in some respects, they also lose an important ability to see in many other respects. So it was more something that they needed, they knew they needed to obey rather than a fear of disobeying. Yes, they, they hadn't yet realized what the full weight of this new knowledge would mean because they had never possessed it and there was nothing in their universe that they were able to see this is what evil looks like. It wasn't until that sprang up in their own hearts when they desired to be like God that they were able to get the first taste of what the fruit of sin would be. So why wasn't Eve surprised at all when the serpent talked to her? I think that's a fascinating question. You, you would think if all of a sudden a serpent starts talking to you that there would be some sort of response that this would produce in the woman. I think there's a couple things that we could maybe say about this. Number one, it's very possible that the start of the conversation that we see in Genesis chapter 3 between the serpent and between Eve is not the beginning of the conversation. So as it opens uh, in Genesis 3, the serpent says, has God really said that you cannot eat of any of the trees of the garden? That seems like a pretty abrupt way to start a conversation. So it may be that there was some sort of discourse that had already started, and Moses just records for us what is theologically significant, significant rather than just the banter of, of Eve and the serpent. So there might be something that has already occurred that just isn't communicated in the text. That's one possibility. A number of older commentators, uh, and by older I mean more in the realm of Christian history rather than more modern commentators, um, suggest that the fact that Eve is not surprised by this discourse with a serpent might suggest to us that Adam and Eve are more accustomed in these early days before the fall with communicating with various spiritual beings, particularly the, the angel realm, and were used to conversations that for us might seem shocking and surprising and miraculous. And so that her threshold for the unexpected it might not have been all that unexpected to her, not because the rest of the animal world talked, but because they had regular engagement with spiritual beings. And so maybe she just understood that the person who she was speaking with, though coming in the form of a serpent, was one of these angelic beings that she was accustomed uh, to commune with. That's a possibility. So did Eve sin by her response to the serpent before she ate the fruit? There certainly seems to be an indication in the text that Eve is on a path that is not good. It, that begins when she misquotes 
whether intentionally or just because Eve, uh, Adam has not communicated clearly enough to her uh, what God originally said regarding the trees. Nonetheless, she's misquoting God in the early part of Genesis 3. That's not good. Then before she even eats of the fruit, we read this rationalization process. She sees that the fruit of the tree looks good. She sees that it is also good for food. She sees also that the knowledge of this tree is good to make one wise. And so there's this step-by-step rationalizing or justifying of the sin that she is about to embark on that Moses cues us into there in Genesis 3 verse 6. But it's not until she takes and she eats of the fruit that that decision is consummated. The intent of her heart is consummated in her act that she has now not only experienced for the first time the temptation of sin, but she has now given herself over to that temptation. And it is in that moment that sin enters into her heart and will then consequently, once she gives to Adam and he eats, will enter into creation. It is the physical act that consummates or realizes the temptation in the heart that produces sin. Did Adam sacrifice himself for Eve by also eating the fruit? I think that is by far the most charitable way that we could look at what Adam does. But in this particular case, I don't think it would be an accurate way of looking at what Adam does. Think, for example, of the contrast of Moses' response. When the people of Israel are dancing at the foot of Mount Sinai around a golden calf, and Moses comes down the mountain and he sees what's happening, he doesn't say, you know what, I'm going to throw my lot in with these people and just be exactly like them so that um, God might take mercy on them because I'm joining in with them, or if they're going to experience whatever it is that they're going to experience, I'm going to experience it right along with them. That's not what Moses does. He throws down the tablets, the, the law breaks both literally and symbolically. And then God, Moses goes back up to speak with God. And God says, Moses, stand away from these people. I'm about to destroy them. Uh, and Moses pleads with God and says, no, take me instead. Don't blot out these people because your name is associated with them. Instead, take me, let me be a sacrifice on their behalf. It's the first time in scripture, or or perhaps not the first time, but the most significant time in the Old Testament to this point that we see very clearly identified what the role of a mediator looks like, someone who will come and stand between the wrath of God and sinful humankind. God says to Moses, you can't do this. Because Moses has sin himself that he has to atone for, so he can't atone for the sin of other people. When Moses dies, he has to die for his own sin, not the sin of others. You need a perfect sacrifice in order to be able to atone for the sin of someone else. So if Adam was really going to sacrifice himself in order to save his wife, it wouldn't be by jumping in with her and indulging in sin with her. That's the opposite of what Adam, in fact, needed to do. What Adam needed to do is what the second Adam does offers himself while he is still perfect and sinless for the sin of his bride. As Christ does that for the church to sanctify her, perhaps human history is different if Adam goes to God and doesn't partake of the fruit and says, take me instead, let me die for the sin of my wife. And perhaps God accepts that sacrifice and raises Adam up from the dead and a new humanity is created through um, this justice appeased through the, the mercy and grace of a sacrifice through Adam. We won't ever be able to know what would have happened there. But Christ, the second Adam, gives us a picture of what real sacrifice looks like. And that is not uh, what Adam accomplished. 
Did Adam and Eve know what death was? You know, my view, and I think it's an important one for us to hold to, is that death is a consequence of the fall. That death is not part of God's good design for creation. It is a new reality that comes into creation as a result of Adam and Eve's sinful behavior. We read in Romans, chap, uh, in Romans, the book of Romans, um, that as by one man's sin, death came into the world, sin came into the world, and death through sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. That death follows closely the act of sin, and sin is the means by which death is introduced into creation. Because Adam and Eve have the authority over creation as image bearers of God, creation is subjected to the curse as a result of their rebellion. And so death comes upon all of creation because of Adam and Eve's failure. So Adam and Eve have no personal experience with death. They haven't experienced it themselves, clearly. They've never lost a loved one. Uh, and they've never seen anything in the creation as of yet die. And so it's a hypothetical prospect that needs to be taken on faith. But that's exactly what God demands at the tree. You guys don't understand the consequences entirely of what disobedience will be, but there will be consequences, ones that are contrary to the life that you've been given. And so if you will just trust me that this life that I've given you is good, it's full of abundance and beauty, and it's connected to fellowship with me as your creator, if you will just trust me, you will continue to experience this life that is mediated through the tree of, of life. But if you rebel and disobey, then Adam and Eve, you will surely die. This is the, the act of faith that God is putting in front of Adam and Eve in, in the form of a choice. So while they don't have a full knowledge yet of what the disobedience will mean, they do have a full knowledge of what their obedience will mean because they're experiencing it and they're experiencing the love and the fellowship of the God who made them. So once we are in the new heaven and the new earth, will there be no temptation for evil or will there be something that would prevent us from sinning and falling again? Yeah, how do we know we're not just going to experience Eden 2.0, that we live for a time in glorious and renewed fellowship with God, and then something in our hearts wells up, pride wells up in our hearts, and we seek to rebel yet again? I think the answer to that is, is twofold. Number one, Adam and Eve are created in innocence, but like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, they are somewhat short of perfection if what we mean by perfection is that they are fully glorified. And in part, that lack of perfection is because they needed to live in obedience with the choice of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They needed to continue to choose to obey God in order to experience the full perfection they were created for. Well, they, of course, fail that test, so they never achieve that perfection. But God hasn't given up that work of perfecting us. We read in Romans chapter 8 that those who God has foreknown, he has predestined, he has called them. Those he has called, he has also justified. Those he has justified, he will also glorify. In other words, he's going to bring this whole work of redemption to completion in our perfection or our glorification. That'll be what we achieve in the new heavens and the new earth when we are recreated into the image of Jesus Christ. And in that environment, there's no longer this need to experience the same kind of moral freedom that we experienced in the garden because we will have already chosen, we have already made the choice uh, to pursue God. But it's also fascinating in Revelation chapter 22, there is this beautiful picture of the new heavens and new earth and how they will recreate Eden in many important ways. But there's one very significant way in which Eden is not recreated in the new heavens and new earth, and that's 
the differences in the trees. So in Revelation 22, we read, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. It's a beautiful picture of, in many senses, Eden renewed and restored. But notice in the new Eden, in the new new heavens and new earth, the new city of God, there will only be one tree. So of the two trees, one of them from Eden comes over into the new heavens and new earth, but it's the tree of life. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is gone. Its purpose has been served. It's been accomplished. And now in the new heavens and new earth, only the tree of life remains. And that will be the fruit that we get to enjoy for eternity. If you have any questions from the sermon or the sermon passage that you would like to have answered on the podcast, please email them by 8 a.m. on Tuesday morning to questions at westcanon.org. We'll see you next week.